going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 39 of the Data Driven Strength Podcast. Today, myself and Zach will primarily be discussing our first training takeaway newsletter. Uh, so as of the time of you listening this, it'll have been out for a few days now. You can check out the first issue on our website. Um, and if you're not already subscribed to our email list, you can also go ahead and, and head to our website. And uh, if you go to the newsletter tab, you will be able to sign up for the training takeaway newsletter. Um, kind of from a high level, what is the goal of the training takeaway newsletter um, and why are we excited about it? Um, so in general, this will allow us to have slightly longer form writing, um, but also very digestible. So we want it to be helpful if you only have like a quick second to, you know, open up the email and check it out front and center of every single one. There's going to be a quick takeaway that is like whatever, one to three sentences Super easy to take a glance at it and you can immediately apply it to your training or your athlete's training, right? But if you want to dive in a little bit more, we'll have like a three to five minute, uh, you know, article kind of contextualizing everything and, and, and chatting about it in more depth. So we're excited about it. Uh, the first one was on a new study looking at the uh, potential for aerobic preconditioning to improve hypertrophy. So in other words, you're basically doing um, aerobic training prior to a hypertrophy program and seeing if that improves uh, hypertrophy outcomes. So we're going to chat about that today. Definitely make sure you're subscribed. The next one is going to be on the influence of uh, training status on the relationship of uh, load and strength gains. Did I accurately contextualize that? Nailed, nailed it. Nailed it. All right, sweet. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, because that was confusing, I just confused it myself. Confused myself by even saying it. You're gonna have to uh, make sure you're subscribed uh, to check out that one, which will be coming from Zach. Um, so yeah, with that out of the way, in addition to signing up for the newsletter, uh, in in terms of supporting us, if you value what we do here, you can check out the description of this episode to see what we offer. Um, you can also leave a rating and review on your podcast player of choice. Um, yeah, we're also going to start off this episode with a question before we get to the newsletter chat, uh, just because we have a bunch of questions that we haven't actually gotten to, uh, that we've been meaning to. So by putting it first, it kind of forces us to do that. And also it gives us a chance to warm up a little bit. So I'll go ahead and read Zach into this one. This is from, uh, Sal. And there was also a similar question from Rodri. So I'm just going to kind of combine them. Basically, they ask what parameters to track uh, for for progress. And if you're just making like a basic spreadsheet, what would you include in terms of metrics uh, to, to make sure you're getting the best training data possible? Yeah, so this is a great question. I think um, as somebody who's been kind of a nerd uh, with, with spreadsheets over the years, um, I've actually noticed that I've tracked less and less things over time. And I think that's... Uh, for one primary reason, and then I'll kind of break up the things that I think do provide some um, valuable information from tracking them. So really the major thing is when we track information from, from a training perspective, the number one thing we want to happen is that these metrics actually influence our management. If we're tracking a bunch of different stuff and it's just giving us all these inputs into the system, but they aren't resulting in a very neat in um, manageable way to actually influence your decision-making positively, then it's honestly just going to probably result in paralysis by analysis and cloud your decision-making more than it's helping it. So that's the number one thing I always say when we talk about tracking, uh, you know, metrics and data and this kind of thing, we want to make sure that we're tracking the things that actually influence our management. So if you're able to look at the things you're currently tracking or want to track and say, I don't know how this is going to influence the way that I would uh, potentially change a training program or, or monitor a training program, then I would say maybe cut it out. Two other things to consider is data is really useful in the long term. And I think that this is something we'll um, probably talk about uh, a little bit more here in a second. But these metrics are often viewed in the short term. But honestly, they're, most of their utility comes from the perspective of pattern recognition months and years. So when you're tracking things, the, the way that they're going to be the most useful is being able to track those over multiple training cycles. So having something that's easily able to be tracked consistently is absolutely vital. It's a, if it's something that takes a ton of time to do, or it's very, um, has a ton of resistance and quite a few barriers to tracking it consistently, 
you might want to look for another option. And then finally, um, we want to make sure the things we're tracking are offering the highest leverage and, and just accuracy and things that are actually going to matter to the training process. So as an, just an example, I just thought of to kind of illustrate my point here is, you know, if you kind of think about all the things that you are doing um, that theoretically could influence your training, you could track something like what type of, type of toothpaste did I use today? And that's obviously not going to influence your ultimate training outcomes but did not see that coming <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why i thought about that but i was just thinking about a, a spreadsheet with like crest and and colgate you know running down it but anyway um yeah like obviously that is something you could track but that's probably not going to provide a ton of leverage in the decision making from your training so we want to make sure the things we're tracking actually do something in terms of our management that Example is obviously ridiculous, but you can see the point of like tracking a little bit more niche things um, in terms of training. Um, and so from the things that I actually would recommend tracking, I think they kind of fall into four main buckets. The first one, and I think this is the, by far the most important, would just be simply to track progress. So whether you're training for strength or for hypertrophy, I think having some sort of metric to track progression is going to be really, really important for people who are oriented towards strength. I think estimated one RM as what's stated in the question, I think is a really good option, but also you could track, you know, reps load RPE um, as well as a measure of absolute performance. Um, from there, I think you probably also could get something that kind of just provides an overall um, dosage of training that you're doing. Um, and so this is where you get things to, to measure volume, maybe the percentage of one RM you're using and also the proximity to failure. But the thing that's important here is to come back to those three main principles that I discussed in the beginning, because volume, just as a basic example, there's probably 17 to 50 different ways you could quantify training volume if you really wanted to. And the old me would have tracked multiple of them trying to kind of, uh, block the blind spots of certain metrics, but the reality is the more that I've done this is I realized that getting really familiar with one metric for yourself, but also for maybe multiple individuals, being able to pick patterns and maybe recognize normal or, or abnormal values, I think is even more important than having quote unquote, the perfect metric. And that probably doesn't exist in the first place. So when we're talking about these kind of metrics, the dosage metrics, I would pick one, get really familiar with it again and track it consistently over the long term because the pattern recognition is ultimately what we care about. Not even really necessarily the absolute values. It's just the fact that something is having a certain relative change over time and then correlating that to the prog, uh, the progress that you're ultimately observing in your actual training outcomes. The next one would be to provide additional context to progress or lack thereof. And this is where your kind of fatigue metrics kind of come in. Just as a basic example, if your estimated 1RM goes down 100 kilos, but you were, you know, maybe you broke your leg playing intramural soccer the, the weekend before, that would make sense. Something like that. So those metrics, that fatigue, aches and pains, stuff like that. That's always going to provide additional context to the, the king metric, which is your progression. So that's where, you know, things like session RPE, soreness, things like that. Once again, you can get really carried away with having way too many of those, in my opinion. But getting a few that are really high leverage and easy to complete, I think, is going to be a really solid addition to what you're doing with the uh, tracking of your progression. And then finally, it's kind of like an honorable mention, one that I think is probably the most underrated is honestly tracking your body weight consistently. That is something that I know um, a lot of individuals kind of skip out on, but that can provide some very, very useful information towards your progression for both strength and hypertrophy that, you know, just without it, it's just something you're not able to really um, use as an input to the system. So those are the things that came to mind and kind of the four main buckets. Josh, I don't know if you have any thoughts there. No, I think you covered everything. You want to read me into the... Sweet. Yep. Newsletter. Cool. All right. So like we talked about, the kind of topic uh, of the rest of the podcast here is going to be over the study and the consequent review that Josh did in this first training takeaway newsletter. So just as a very brief intro, what we're going to be talking about here is a periodization study that used aerobic training to potentially potentiate hypertrophy in a coming resistance training program. Josh is going to dig into it more here, but we're going to try to spin this practically as much as possible, which is ultimately what we're trying to do with these newsletters. So without further ado, Josh, go ahead. Yeah, we'll get into the specifics in terms of that design, right? How did they look at that question of, you know, can aerobic training actually potentiate future hypertrophy? Before we get into that, um, I just want to 
as quickly as possible, go through the rationale of why why that might be the case. Because I think, if anything, people might assume the opposite, right? They typically have like the the interference effect in mind of of specifically like, hey, cardio is bad for for muscular adaptations. Um, so I think it's important to to mention why that might be the case. Um, so it the the author's hypothesis, and there might be some other things at play, but I'll kind of focus on on the author's hypothesis here. Um, is that it's largely related to uh, satellite cells. So really briefly, satellite cells are kind of part of this whole signaling cascade from the point of a training stimulus to the point of actually new uh, muscular proteins being added to, to your muscle and thus hypertrophy occurring. So basically, um, these satellite cells again, I'm trying to keep this as basic as possible. They're, they're, they're basically in like a chilled out state, if you will, but then they can be activated by a stimulus and then a bunch of steps occur and then they can actually fuse to existing myofibers or muscle fibers and basically increase the capacity for, to, to support like this muscle growth cascade. So you basically just have like more metabolic machinery, more more, more of the good stuff that's helpful for growing muscle. So um, if if you can improve this satellite cell response, then you might see a greater, uh, greater hypertrophy response to a later training program, right? Very, very briefly, how aerobic training might kind of influence satellite cells comes down to capillary density. Um, so capillaries are, are, you know, part of the system that gets, um, you know, blood from your heart, ultimately to the, the organs that need it. And in this case, it's muscle. And if you have more of those capillaries, um, it is hypothesized that um, you're going to have more satellite cells closer to those capillaries. And thus, those satellite cells are going to be exposed to more of the good stuff in the blood that might... Um, that might increase the signaling and, and thus the response for kind of these steps that lead to muscle growth, right? So again, from a high level, the, the sequence of events would be, okay, you do some aerobic training, you increase capillary density. Now you kind of have some improvements in terms of the, the satellite cell dynamics, and now your propensity to grow is increased, right? Um, I'll spare you on some of the other details um, to, to, again, keep this as practical as possible. But one other thing to note is that um, there could be some other mechanisms at play, right? Like this study can't necessarily answer that question of whether that mechanism is correct. Um, but again, there could be some other, other things at play. The other could just be that you have improved recovery capacity, which I will say is not mutually exclusive from that uh, mechanism I just pointed out. Um, but overall, you know, so something could be going on in terms of having better localized aerobic adaptations and thus being able to benefit from a hypertrophy training program. So I'll pause there before I get into the specifics of the study and see if you have anything to add or clarify, Zach. Oh, yeah, I think that's a really good overview. And and ultimately, um, I think it's a really interesting kind of kind of thing here. Um, I'll probably save some of my kind of speculations on kind of how we can use some of this stuff for a little bit after the study overview. But um, yeah, the, the mechanisms are interesting. Like you said, we can't really isolate whether this is true or false based on this study that we're going to talk about um, from, from this alone. But um, yeah, I think the, the increased kind of, you know, blood flow and all the stuff that comes to those satellite cells and also just improve kind of general um, recovery capacity, removal of waste products, stuff like that, I think is, is all interesting candidates for potential benefits, um, based on the study that we're going to discuss. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of get into the, the study design here. So they used a within subjects design. So if Zach was a subject, he would have had one of his legs in condition a and the other leg in condition B, which is nice because, and I don't know if you guys just heard my Alexa go off right there, but we're going to leave this in the podcast. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the, there's a benefit to those within subjects design is that, um, you know, Zach's nutrition is theoretically accounted for sleep is theoretically accounted for. There are some downsides that I do mention in the pot, er, in the newsletter itself, probably won't get into those, uh, here. Um, 
But nonetheless, within each individual, they had one leg that did aerobic conditioning, then resistance training. And then they had another leg that only did resistance training. So if Zach's left leg was in that aerobic plus resistance training condition, basically he would have done six weeks of cycling just with that one leg while the other leg doesn't do anything. Okay. Then they take some measurements after those six weeks. Um, and then both legs do 10 weeks of resistance training. And then after that, they take some more measurements, right? So basically you have one leg that did aerobic preconditioning before that 10 weeks of training. You have the other leg that's basically coming in fresh, right? Um, without any, any prior training. Is that a pretty clear overview, Zach, you think? 100%. Cool. Um, and in terms of like what the aerobic training was, what the resistance training was, again, check out the newsletter. Um, but there's a couple important things to note here is that the cycling training did successfully increase capillary density, and it also failed to increase muscle size, which I was surprised by because typically in untrained individuals, which is what these subjects were, um, you're going to see you're going to see muscle growth from basically anything, including cycling training. So I was surprised by that, but it does help make the results a little bit cleaner because muscle size is similar at the starting point, right? And, and they didn't see muscle growth. So there's, there's less of kind of an influence there, if that makes sense. Um, in terms of the specifics of uh, the resistance training, one downside is that the resistance training was bilateral, meaning both legs, like they were doing bilateral leg press, for example. Um, it would have been, I think, probably a slight benefit if they would have done like single leg for both. That way you're kind of controlling proximity to failure in both. Um, but they didn't do that. I don't think that changes our, our, um, our interpretation, but I think it's at least worth pointing out. Okay. Let's dive in into the results here. Um, first of all, shout out to the authors for making all of their raw data available. It, uh, was extremely helpful when trying to kind of div, uh, dig into this because they had a lot of results and to be able to kind of, you know, rerun some of the stuff ourselves or look at some things they didn't look at was extremely, extremely helpful. Um, so overall, just kind of give you the easy takeaway first in terms of the results is that baseline capillary density seems to be more important than any change in capillary density. So let me kind of rephrase that because I think that's important to kind of internalize is that capillary density at the start of resistance training appears to be important, but if you're already in a good spot without aerobic training, you're probably fine. But if your capillary density could use some work, if you will, you might see a benefit, right? So in other words, if you kind of look at, at these results, which we're going to dive into, um, it's less so about the magnitude of change prior to the resistance training in terms of capillary density, but more so about how was your capillary density at the start of the resistance training. Okay. So go for it, Zach. I think two senses to summarize. It's not necessarily about getting fitter as you're training. It's about being fit at baseline in a way. Yeah. Well said. Or, well or said. lack or lack thereof. Well said. And to be clear, like I would take that with a grain of salt because there there's multiple analyses you can kind of draw on here. And I don't think like I'm super confident in that result. I'm just going with what I'm most confident in from this study itself, which is one study, solid design within subjects design, but only 14 subjects, untrained individuals. As 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 uh, Doctor Pack would say, terms and conditions apply. Um, so again, take that with a grain of salt. But I'll kind of go through the results that inform that conclusion. So basically, they did um, they they did an analysis where they took the growth from pre resistance training to post resistance training in each of those two conditions. And when you when you do it that way, there was no interaction effect, right? Meaning you couldn't statistically say that uh, the leg that did aerobic training beforehand saw significantly more growth than the condition that didn't do aerobic training beforehand. However, when you analyze them separately, there are honestly pretty jaw-dropping results, which to be clear, is not the most statistically robust way to go about it, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Um, and again, take these with a grain of salt. So... Uh, the mixed fiber, which was just kind of when you take both type one and type two fibers together, uh, in the resistance training only leg grew, uh, 29.8%. Um, 
excuse me, that is in the, uh, that is in the aerobic training plus resistance training. And then in the resistance training only group, um, they grew 8.1%. Okay. Um, and again, the interaction effect was not statistically significant, but, um, when you look at some of the analyses, when you, uh, only look at them individually indicate that the group that did the preconditioning saw greater growth and just looking at those percentages as well as the between group effect size uh, was 0.72, which kind of falls in that medium threshold um, indicates there might be something going on. But again, statistically, we can't necessarily say that the condition with the um, preconditioning saw greater growth. Does the way I explain that make sense, Zach? Yeah, it's basically there's a there's a large like in terms of the the actual numbers involved here, there's a pretty large difference, but the confidence we can have that this is a quote unquote like real finding are probably to be tempered a little bit. Basically, it's it's it's, it's one study, as Josh said, but the magnitude of differences here are definitely something kind of make you raise your eyebrows and, and require further kind of investigation in, in, into why this may be the case, basically. Yeah, well said. Um, I realize I'm not being like extremely thorough in the way I'm explaining this, um, just because I'm trying to also not lose people with the explanation. Um, so yeah, with with that, I'll kind of just just mention that I'm I'm not fully explaining that on purpose. Um, in terms of like what exactly I mean, in terms of uh, how they're quote unquote different when you analyze them separately. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll move on to the next analysis. Check out the newsletter. <laughs> yeah, check out the newsletter for a little bit more. That's what it's for. <laughs> yeah. So the next analysis, and this is probably the one that I think is the most interesting, um, or, or probably the most useful, or I would argue the most helpful or revealing, is that um, they basically did a correlation analysis when taking all 28 legs, right? So instead of breaking them up into what they did at... Um, what they did before the resistance training, right? Did they do nothing or did they do the aerobic training? In this case, they just compiled all 28 legs together and they did a correlation between pre-resistance training capillary density and how much muscle uh, growth they saw, okay? Um, and these findings were significant or that correlation was significant in type two fibers, but just above the, the threshold for significance in type one fibers. Um, the correlation coefficients here were like 0 0.35, 0 0.37, somewhere around there, kind of indicating, you know, a small to moderate effect or a small to moderate kind of explanatory power, if you will. Um, and the reason I think this one is interesting is that this was, you know, significant, at least, at least for type two fibers, um, is again, you're compiling all of the legs together. So you're basically looking at the starting point of the capillary density. So this circles back to that overall takeaway they gave, uh, we gave you guys in terms of it's not about how much fitter you got, but instead about how fit you are at baseline, right? If we think about that other analysis that was not statistically significant, that is looking at how much fitter you got because you have the group that did aerobic conditioning versus no aerobic conditioning. Uh, whereas this analysis is just how fit you are at baseline. And this was significant or at least more so than the other one. Um, hopefully that's, that's clear, but I'll pause there. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a really good explanation. Cool. One more analysis to go through. Um, this one is also pretty, uh, jaw dropping, but I think it's, um, also pretty interesting because it kind of gets at this high versus low responder question that we, we like to talk about and, and we have personal interest in. Um, so in this analysis, they basically had, uh, all 28 legs. So they kind of put all 28 legs on the table and then they saw, said, okay, which 10 legs had the greatest capillary density prior to the resistance training and which 10 legs had the lowest capillary density prior to resistance training. And then they kind of made two groups out of those 10 legs each and compared hypertrophy outcomes. The 10 legs that had the highest capillary density before resistance training compared to the, the kind of low, uh, low capillary density group, uh, they saw way more hypertrophy. Uh, this was a significant difference. Uh, so if we look at type two fibers, for example, the high capillary density legs saw on average 54.6%, uh, muscle C, uh, muscle fiber CSA growth. And then the low capillary density legs saw 9.4%. 
percent muscle CSA growth. Look at those SDs, man. Yeah, um, we have some Crazy. some standard deviations here as well. So fifty four point six plus or minus fifty seven point two, and then for the for the low uh, low capillary density group, nine point four plus or minus twenty seven point four. So again, this was d despite the the massive amount of uh, variance here, this was still a significant difference. But like Zach said, just a ton of individual differences. And from playing around with their raw data, I'm, I think I mentioned this before at the start of the podcast, just a ton of heterogeneity, like negative 50 to plus 150% changes, like just absolutely insane heterogeneity in the study. Um, but nonetheless, I think a pretty interesting analysis. However, there are some caveats with this. Um, and if you think about the design, right? If you have someone like that is just an insane responder to training, right? And they happen to also have high capillary density in both of their legs, even though one of them didn't do aerobic training prior to the resistance training, uh, that individual could have been um, basically counted in that high capillary density group twice. But they're just the type of person that grows like a weed when they train and thus, they're kind of inflating this difference. So, again, if you dive into their data set that they provided, um, four out of 10 of the legs in each group also had like the other leg in that group. So, in other words, 10 legs, eight people per group. So, again, an especially high responder could have, you know, pulled that high capillary density group up, and a especially low responder could have pulled that low capillary density group up. Um, so that's just kind of a caveat. And I would, that's why I just kind of caution with those jaw dropping results, because you could take a very liberal interpretation and be like, whatever, four per four times the gains. If you have high capillary density at the start of hyper, uh, a hypertrophy program, I wouldn't go that far, but I do think it's, it's interesting. And there might be something here when you kind of take all of these analyses together. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. I think. Um, we're probably going to dig into it here in a little bit, but um, I'm just thinking through why that correlation analysis is so important um, now, because I think that kind of prevents you in a way from taking that that finding too far, in a mm -hmm. sense, um, because if you're thinking, oh, man, like you said, there's the people that had very high capillary density at baseline are the ones that responded the best. Therefore, I need to get as high capillary density as physically possible. That correlation analysis kind of lets us get a, an eye into that to show that eh, that's probably not the, the the thing there as as that relationship isn't isn't very linear as the, as Josh said the the R values there were pretty small um, and I don't recall if that's was that the one that we couldn't replicate Josh I can't quite remember yeah I didn't dive into yeah no, it's into just, just just yeah just glaze over that all 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 the all to say there is that those correlations while very interesting I don't think we're like super duper strong. And so I think that further highlights the fact that that um, sub-analysis where, like you said, four fourfold differences in hypertrophy or whatever, that isn't saying let's get as much capillary density as physically possible because that's going to make us jacked. That linear relationship doesn't seem to be super duper strong. Yeah. And if j just to kind of like make this easier to conceptualize, you can take that correlation coefficient and do some simple math and you can tell uh, and that that correlation coefficient can tell you how much of the variance in pre-training capillary density explains the variance in hypertrophy in response to the program and it's it's turns out to be about 14 percent or so that's that that's something but it's not everything right we're not saying capillary density is like the reason you are or aren't growing there are a ton of factors at play here this is just something that we might be able to actually control um, that could be, and, and I, uh, the way I said it in the newsletters, could be something worth considering in the face of a plateau. I'm not saying everyone needs to start doing like sets of 30 year round or take six months off to, to really build their aerobic base or anything like that. But instead, just something to kind of, you know, put in the back of your mind, something to experiment with. Uh, also have some practical things that I've been doing to kind of lean into this direction at times with some athletes that we might get into. But I just want to kind of temper things down because honestly, when I read through this paper the first time, I got more excited than after I read it through second, third, and fourth time and also ran the analyses uh, myself 
and had Zach run, run them as well to make sure I wasn't miss, missing things. And again, this is interesting, exciting stuff, but I don't want to like oversell it by any means at all. Um, and if you if you if you look at the newsletter, you can tell we're pretty cautious in our language with that takeaway specifically. Um, we just said, hey, it could be the bottleneck for progress in some lifters, and it it might promote future hypertrophy if, especially if your aerobic fitness is poor. Uh, that's kind of what I put specifically in the takeaway um, because that's a whole nother question, right? You could be sitting there and waiting for us to talk about training status, which I think is important to to quickly mention, right? These individuals were not fit at all. Um, I looked up kind of what their average VO2 maxes would be in terms of like just where they would fall in terms of general fitness on a population level. And I think off the top of my head was like 35th percentile or something. So I'm sure that almost everyone listening to this is well above that. And it could just be that if you're really unfit, you're not going to see a lot of growth. If you are at least decently fit, you're going to be fine and you're not really going to see an additional benefit. You could also make an argument, and again, I put this in the newsletter, that it becomes more important as training status increases. You have more muscle mass. You need, uh, you basically need more, you have more volume to kind of, uh, uh, more muscle volume that you need to kind of support, if you will. So it might become more important. I don't know. We can't tell that for sure from this data, but I think this is really some good idea fuel, if you will. Um, but yeah, Zach, what do you have to add there? I think I'm full of it. Nothing to add here. I just got some some questions for you. Um, I'll, I'll pester you with with questions that I don't think we have firm answers to, but just things that, you know, as you were talking, um, I kind of thought about um, that either kind of tangentially related or just like specific questions for practice here. So, you know, one, one question this immediately makes me think of is like, like we talked about this one study, right? So then usually what happens when, when this kind of data comes out, we start thinking about, okay, if the claim that comes from this study is true, what other kind of related areas of research would be useful areas to kind of look into? And one of them that I, I thought about that I would be really interested to dig into. And so I just, the first thing I want to say is a shout out to the authors again for providing individual data, because that just makes everything so much easier and so much more robust. And the discussion in this paper can just be so much at a higher level because of that. And I think that's a really, really cool thing. Um, one thing I, I was thinking about was if we could go back through all of the linear periodization data and look at individuals who had low aerobic fitness what would be their kind of rate of gain in that second block outside after the kind of the higher repetition block. I wonder if that um, would be, would be something that's interesting. Of course, there's all those studies generally don't have individual level data, so we can't really look into it, but that would be another area of research that this potentially could show up um, in the sense that they're doing higher repetition training that is kind of followed by your stock standard hypertrophy training. And then generally like very high load training at the end. Um, but if we kind of took the the hypertrophy in that kind of middle zone, is that kind of potentiated by that first block in aerobically deconditioned individuals? Because those studies generally for hypertrophy don't show a positive effect, it may be that if you are, you know, aerobically fit, especially for a trained lifter, that just that comes from general training, maybe this effect does kind of go away. We don't know. I just thought that was kind of an interesting area that we could kind of tie to this. Um, that, that is something that could be related. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I guess, I guess it is interesting that that doesn't seem to show up, um, within, within those, those studies where basically you have a linearly periodized program that's designed for strength, but you don't see an improvement to hypertrophy. And again, in the newsletter, I give a brief primer on kind of the, the current state of the periodization research for strength and hypertrophy. Um, and yeah, for hypertrophy, basically we don't see anything from high, from periodization. Um, so that might be an indication that either a, this doesn't matter if people are, are somewhat decently trained and if they just have a little bit of training to get them trained, right? Like the, the fact that it's maybe a 12 week training study by the time they train for a couple of weeks, they're, they're, they're good to go on this front or it could be that no other study has gone to this extreme in the sense of like actual aerobic training for the local musculature that they're trying to grow, right? It could mean that you have to uh, 
you know, you have to do actual cardio or you have to do things that pe- people wouldn't really do with a barbell, right? And, and you have mm-hmm. to get on the, the cycle ergometer. You have to um, do BFR type stuff or, or something like that, right? I'd have to think through it more in terms of the best way to attack that. Um, but yeah, could go, could go, <laughs> could go one of two ways for sure. And this actually brings up my next question that I actually think is pretty interesting. Now, big, big disclaimer here. I'm going to wave the flag. I don't know endurance training very well. And this is going to be part of me drawing on that. The the limited that I've... For those of you guys that aren't aren't watching on YouTube, Zach is Zach is acting, <laughs> pretending to wave a flag, and it's actually waving. A flag, it's it's yeah. really entertaining. Yeah, keep that up, um, man. Just keep wave wave the flag the whole time. Um. So, w- one thing I was thinking about when when we kind of were working through this is like, if this is an aerobically driven adaptation, then it. Is it actually the case that this would be best stimulated by like I, the first thing that came to mind initially is like low load training to failure? Is that what would do it? Or would it be more just like increasing like the total volume load that you do like considerably? So things that it would do that increasing sets, generally increasing repetition range, but maybe actually staying a little bit short of failure so you can just accumulate more work for the sake of accumulating more work. And now this is kind of turning more into a true like work capacity phase rather than a low load, you know, manipulating repetition range uh, phase. The reason I bring that up is again, flags being waved. Um, I think that generally speaking for like more aerobic driven adaptations that the, like runners and things like that will actually stay very, very like low intensity for, for that kind of stuff, as opposed to like training for like your lactate threshold. I think that's where more of like the sprint kind of running comes in. And I think that's where resistance training kind of falls. Um, so if these capillary adaptations are more aerobic in nature, maybe it is kind of more so on that work capacity end of things rather than really pushing the proximity to failure, that kind of stuff that would be more akin to like, a sprint in a way, if that makes sense. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think this is where the mechanism would be helpful to know, right? Because in this case, right, if it's, if it is generally related to capillarization, that's going to look different than if it's just a general recovery capacity thing. Because if if I'm trying to increase someone's recovery capacity, I might just try to add volume over time as, as they feel ready um, whereas if I'm, if I'm trying to specifically target, if I'm trying to specifically promote, uh, capillarization, that's going to look different. It's going to be more on the aerobic side of things. Am I kind of on the same track as you are, Zach? Yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't know the answer to either thing. I, yeah, don't, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the answer to the mechanism is. And I also don't know based on the little bit that I'm inferring from more endurance related exercise, where do those connect? to what we might try to do from a resistance training perspective. But I, I do think there is an interesting question there that isn't quite as straightforward as, okay, this seems to suggest that aerobic preconditioning, if we're lifters, we're going to apply this more in the resistance training realm. Let's just do low load training instead. I don't think it's quite that, quite that simple, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I've been trying to chew on this because uh, we also had some people reply to the newsletter as well, because I kind of prompted people to. Um, and, and a couple questions were like, um, you know, wh- what would kind of be your approach to doing something like this? And I've been, I've been trying to chew on it. Um, and I haven't like made any changes to, to my coaching practice or anything. Cause I don't, don't really do that from one study, but I have been reflecting and, and Zach, this is something that we've been talking about a lot, especially as that pertains to our individualized programming group, um, is, Basically, taking our typical training cycles and adding a block at the start of it that is more work capacity in nature. But with that said, it's not like a it's not a dramatic thing, right? It's not like we're we're going from fives on squat in a hypertrophy phase to you know thirties on whatever split squats, right? It's more like all right, we'll go from fives to eights. And call that work capacity and generally keep the workload the same. Uh, I, I don't know, right? We, we don't know whether that's sufficient or if we need to, to go even further from that. Um, I, I, 
I think obviously we need more research and I, I think I also just need to do more thinking and experimentation with it. Um, but I'm not sure. And, but I am, I have anecdotally seen that those, those blocks that we've been calling amplify blocks, uh, to be pretty dang helpful. People seem to be really ready for what's to come, but there's a lot of confounders there, right? It's just more time training with the general training style with the microcycle, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot, there's a lot to uncover here. Um, and, and I'm just not sure, but it's interesting stuff all around. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, trying to think, uh, the other thing I was going to say, I'll mention this comment. If I remember the other thing, I'll say it, but the, the other thing to, to keep in mind here is the, the length of the study as always. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically in this case, I do wonder if we're seeing the repeated bout effect in kind of a weird way. Um, so basically they're adapting to some sort of mechanical stimulus in their muscle for a few weeks, even though that's very, very minor. Then they head into resistance training and they're able to, you know, essentially minimize the amount of damage that they're occurring from the initial sessions and start growing muscle sooner. Um, and maybe that has just that, that because of the way that we're measuring it at the time points that we are, we see a difference right now, but over the course of six months, that would be completely evaporated. Once the other leg adapts, that could happen again. This is a pretty large effect and we generally don't see that. So that's one thing to keep in mind, but that I do think that's worth bringing up in the sense that, man, I wish they, uh, first and foremost, I wish they did separate kind of the resistance training. Cause I do wonder if like the rate of progression would have been considerably different because of that. Um, and that would be kind of telling, right? If, if they had the volume load, uh, progression per limb that we could kind of compare, that would be an interesting comparison to yeah. offer if they were able to progress at a much faster rate, that could have just been a repeat about effect in a way. And um, keep, keep in mind, it's bilateral training, right? Bilateral resistance training. So yeah, then now that, now that you mentioned that. It could be that the aerobic conditioning group may have been able to do considerably more volume load because of these adaptations they've accrued beforehand. Um, But they weren't able to actually kind of realize that because they're almost held back by the other leg. So I know we mentioned before that it was it was bilateral training. That's a limitation. But I'll I'll kind of double down on that now because, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe maybe they were able to add load quicker at a given rep target. Uh, like they did in this study because their recovery capacity was better. But again, they weren't able to fully realize that. Um, so that is really interesting and, and important to keep in mind because obviously in practice you would, you would do this on both of your limbs. What's uh? How, do you remember how much volume they did in this study? Number of sets? Um, it, I can I let you know in like two seconds here. Yeah. yeah no worries. Um, um, Cause I, three, I just, so, I, so they trained three times per week. Yep. So it was like 27, sets for the quads per week holy cow okay yeah that i mean yeah if it's going to show up that's another case in which that would probably show up because um another thing i was thinking is just like okay why why may this matter like if we just think about um i i'm trying to think of it like more of like from an experience base and not necessarily like a mechanism so like do a set of squats with high reps to a nine rp right um if it's like a set of 15, it's a true nine RP, true one RIR. Most people are going to be like pretty darn whipped. And so the, what I wrote down on my notes here is just improving cardiovascular fitness can kind of make your musculature treat a very high rep set, like a moderate rep set. And we know from like the fatigue research that high rep sets in general seem to from the way that we currently measure fatigue often result in way much or way greater fatigue than low rep sets. So in a way it may be, um, locally kind of treating a higher repetition range, more like a moderate repetition range. And also if you just think about the performance on those sets, especially if they're doing 27 sets, I didn't realize it was that high. Um, then, you know, you do a set of squats to a, to a nine RP with moderate to high reps. And you look to repeat your performance on the next set. If you're more aerobically conditioned and have those capillaries uh, dense in your muscle locally, 
potentially you're able to recover and have a more similar performance to your first set. So you're no longer training with these very, very low performance sets that essentially are significantly decreasing the amount of tension you're able to apply to the muscles. So just from like a, like a experience basis, I, I see how this, like from a face validity perspective could make sense. And I think a lot of the listeners will kind of be able to identify with that. Um, it's just the degree to which this matters for trained individuals over the long term, obviously remains to be seen, but, um, interesting nonetheless. And like you said, Josh, I have had a few instances where for clients, um, this has been something I've kind of turned to, and it, it, I have had some decent anecdotal success with it. Like you said, ton of confounding variables. Another thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this was the amount of times personally, and I've had a few clients do this, but I, I'm not with them there. And I usually give them this as an option. So I don't know how often they use it is uh, supersetting. So like uh, in, antagonistic supersets, um, while I don't know if this applies on like the local level nearly as much, I've anecdotally noticed like hypertrophy blocks where I'm very consistently using supersets to save time. And then I go into a strength block where I'm trying to prioritize performance a little bit more. I do think that when I kind of look back and think about things, I do think I've done a little bit better with those. This is particularly when I use supersets on main lifts and not just like biceps and triceps, things like that. Like very often I'll be doing my volume sets of squats and start warming up on bench press and start going back and forth on my last few sets there. And so your heart's, you know, pumping a pretty good amount there. Um, yeah, if I look back, I think there is kind of somewhat of a relationship there to how kind of well I tolerate the the strength block and kind of can give give my best effort in terms of performance there. But again, confounded observation, which is interesting to note. I don't know if you agree yeah. with that or anything. I very rarely had someone come to me that maybe came from like doing a previous sport or was just an athlete growing up and they're just kind of still, you know, have some of those adaptations or at least some of those aerobic adaptations, or at least they come back really quickly when they're exposed to some degree of, of exercise. Very rarely have I had someone that was like a previous athlete or um, just comes to me and, and is generally a fit person. And has that been a problem? And I think that's kind of the main takeaway here is that um, being fit aerobically, uh, especially in the local musculature is probably not, probably never a bad thing. Um, the obvious potential downside is wasted time away from more specific training, but that's not to say you can't do it concurrently, especially if like top end strength, isn't the goal in the immediate term. So, um, you know, if, if someone were to ask me right now, like what the best way to apply this would be is like, Hey, if, if you're not too worried about top end strength and you can, you know, be okay with again, that top end strength being kind of blunted due to a little bit more fatigue, just kind of add in some local, uh, some some training like cycling for your quads, for example, or really high rep work for maybe the pecs or something um, to potentially potentiate a block to come and just do that during your hypertrophy block, right? Maybe maybe drop workload a little bit um, of, of your other training. I think that'd be a good, good place to start. Um, but yeah, I'd say the main takeaway is like there's probably not a huge downside to being a more fit individual and there might be reason to believe it. It'll... Um, kind of potentiate your future progress. So I think that's a really yeah. good way to sum it up. Like a, that's like a, such a good like takeaway. Um, the interference effect has been, you know, I think the, the, the uh, caution with that, I think has been severely and uh, not severely that's significantly um, dampened over the last few years. Got a ton of data on that recently. Um, and I think all Josh is saying is like, just make sure you're not in the bottom, you know, 10% of most yeah. cardiovascular health markers, like that's no longer an excuse, I, I would say. It, and it potentially has some upsides if you get yourself in a range of like being, you know, pretty cardiovascular fit. Obviously, like you said, there's an opportunity cost of doing very serious ultra marathon training and trying to mm -hmm. squat as much as you possibly can. But that's not what we're saying. We're just saying, you know, generally speaking, try to be a fitter individual. And that probably is going to have negligible downsides and potentially mm -hmm. has some upsides. Dude, I'm just thinking back of like, so super quick story time. When uh, I, I I realized that I was only going to be able to play D3 basketball if I wanted to, to play it in college. And I realized I liked lifting a lot more. Uh, and the whole kind of, you know, ball's life dream was out the window. And I was literally happy that we lost in the playoffs for uh, for my, my senior year of basketball. I remember like I just went 
like I just started training so much more after that because because it's what I wanted to do, right, dude? The amount of volume I could handle was absolutely insane, absolutely insane. Yeah, like uh, I just kind of reflect back on that, and obviously it's in close proximity to having basketball practice for whatever ten to twenty hours a week and being in very good aerobic shape, um, and then just going straight into uh, basically the only thing I'm caring about is, is, is resistance training. I mean, I grew a ton. There's a ton of confounding factors. Um, but that's the first time I, that was where all of my kind of recovery resources were going, but the amount of volume I could handle was just insane. I think about that all the time. Like I did some ridiculous stuff. Like when I was in high school, I would have, you know, basketball, uh, uh, Oh my goodness. Pick up basketball in the, in the mornings. Then, you know, the football team would have lifting and then we would also go, you know, run routes and and throw passes and stuff and running around for two, three hours doing that, playing, playing, uh, you know, defense on the other side, just running around. Then I would go lift and, you know, in those sessions, I did the dumbest stuff I've ever done and just, if I could, because my thinking now is like, of course you wouldn't replicate that. That's not what we're saying. But if I could get 25% of that volume and be able to recover from it now, like that, you know, then we're starting to talk like that may be actually meaningful, but, um, you know, so I, I think that's a really, really good way to sum it up is that there's negligible downsides most likely to being a fitter individual. And this is some evidence that's interesting that, maybe gives you that little extra kick to get started because it may have some potential upside as well. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, talking through it kind of in this format, just only almost pushes me towards it more. Cause I'm, I'm realizing the downsides. Yeah, the, I don't, yeah, I don't think it makes the evidence stronger. Like we've talked about it's yeah, yeah. limited in a lot of ways, but the, like the alternative is less scary than, than right. thinking it's like, if there's really yeah, no like, downside. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. I think this, this was helpful. Um, For sure. And I, I should have said this on the front end, but hopefully this was differentiated enough between the newsletter to kind of, you know, be be useful so you can consume both. Um, I think we talked about a ton of stuff that I, I didn't initially think about. This was this was really good. Yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, definitely, you know, especially as we kind of get rolling with these ones, give us your feedback. Uh, let us know what you think um, about the podcast as well as the newsletter. Uh, we're excited about it because it'll allow us to, you know, go, go a little bit deeper on, on some things, but again, trying to keep things as practical as possible. Cause I know that's what people typically enjoy. And then we can nerd out and kind of, uh, you know, hypothesize during these podcasts and whatnot. So yeah, definitely, definitely drop your feedback. Um, Zach, you got anything to add or can I wrap it up? Nope. Thanks guys. Cool. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Um, again, be sure you are subscribed to the newsletter. Um, we'll make that the first link in the bio or in the description rather. And yeah, make sure you're, uh, all signed up to receive the next one and all future ones and appreciate you tuning uh, appreciate you tuning in take care guys